Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is Brad Kearns. You're building a company here, and that's a, a 10, 20, 30 year process, and you need to pace yourself accordingly. Throwing in, you know, three 15 hour days in succession may be needed, but doing that chronically, it's not sustainable. People construe an email or the written word in the wrong way. Just nip that stuff in the bud and get out of your chair or pick up the phone and interact with that person. Here's a quick thank you to our sponsors. They make this show possible and the tremendous production behind it online and in audio. Thank you, wildideabuffalo.com. Grass-fed, locally raised, on the Great Plains for the last 130,000 years. Quit eating that junk food feedlot cattle and get some quality meat into your life. And thank you, DNAfit.com. Cutting-edge genetic testing, delivering customized diet and exercise recommendations for your peak performance. Use the discount code GOY30. Get over yourself. Integro Probiotics make this fabulous liquid probiotic high potency. It's called Flourish, so your microbiome can flourish. Gut health is everything. Get started. Visit EntegroHealth.com and Tribali Foods. Pre-made, creatively flavored hamburger and chicken patties. When you're in a rush, drop one down, fry it up. It's delicious. T-R-I-B-A-L-I. And Almost Heaven. That's the name of my sauna. These are beautiful home-use saunas made of real wood, shipped to your door, easy to assemble, and then you are rocking. That's right, I'm going from chest freezer cold therapy into the hot barrel sauna. Check them out at almostheaven.com. And the Primal Blueprint Online Multimedia Educational Courses to go primal, go keto, get a stand-up desk going, master the challenge of endurance training, Go to bradkearns.com and click on the links to learn more about these courses. If you're sick of my voice on the podcast, you can now get sick of my face, too, on the videos. And Ancestral Supplements. This is grass-fed liver, organ meats, and bone marrow delivered in a convenient gelatin capsule. Don't stress about cooking liver anymore. Just pop some pills or throw capsules into a smoothie every day like me. And now on to our show... Hi, listeners. It's Brad. I'm so excited to bring you this interview with my old friend, Martin Bronze. This is take 23 of the intro recording. Just kidding, a little, but I really want to get this right because uh, it's this is what Martin's all about. He's a very focused peak performer. He wanted to talk over the phone for 20 minutes before we did the recording. I said, no, that's against the rules because we got to just let it flow. We got to get down to the real deal. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be a performance. But I love Martin's mindset where he wants to be well prepared and make sure that we convey the right message. And he was reluctant to do the podcast because he doesn't listen to podcasts, doesn't know what this whole media is all about. I said, don't worry, man, we're going to sit down on the couch, we're going to catch up. And I think it went really well. Uh, I hope you will get some incredible insights out of here because this is a guy who, you know, you have those people in your life who make a profound impact and lasting impact on you from the way that they comport themselves. That was one of his favorite words. I had to look it up in the dictionary uh, to, to learn what comportment meant. And it means the way you carry yourself, your mindset, your disposition, the way you treat others. He was a great 
great leader uh, during this wild times of the dot-com era where his first objective uh, was to build this company at breakneck speed because it was so competitive. And indeed, uh, Interwoven was lauded by the Fast Company magazine as the fastest growing software company in its category, uh, growing at 726% for some measurement period. And then after the dot-com thing sort of slowed down, crashed, he had to preside over the same organization where they had to get lean and mean and tight and make painful cuts to wonderful staff. So he had this incredible roller coaster journey where he had the helm of the ship and you know steered this company into actually technically still alive today, even though they've gotten acquired and they no longer operate under that name. It's basically a success story from the very competitive days of the Silicon Valley. And Wow, I have such a wonderful uh, memories of that, those times when I was down there uh, having him as a mentor and navigating this career change where I came from being an athlete to uh, trying to help ordinary corporate workers be healthy and fit. And there's so many attributes and things that I think you can learn from Martin that hopefully will come out in the interview. Uh, advice for young people building their career and being patient and not going after the uh, the quick opportunity of the startup, but rather learning from uh, the process of people that have more experience from you. And then just the way that he conducts his personal life. To me, uh, since I'm kind of a loosey-goosey type of personality, uh, to see him operate with these crisp and tight and focused principles of uh, organization and having you know time and, and a proper pace of the day so you don't get behind and frazzled and scattered. He never was that way. And here he is in this crazy dot-com scene where people are sleeping under their desks and stuffing food down their face and slamming coffee and continuing to work on their code into all hours of the night. And yes, there was part of that for him that he'll describe. But on a day-to-day work basis, you would walk by his office The door was always open for anyone in the company to come talk to. He always had a positive and energetic spirit and was encouraging to everyone in the office. Um, The desk was clean. There was no clutter, no paperwork. Uh, It was just all about being present in the moment. And wow, he had such a great impact on all the employees there. So I want to get into uh, some of his life and leadership skills and insights that I hope you'll enjoy. And then as we discuss his uh, magnificent rise to the top, which so many people aspire to, uh, you know, down in the tech scene in Silicon Valley, and you have your uh, financial windfall, and he retired at a young age and uh, literally sailed off into the sunset as he transitioned into uh, an intense pursuit of other types of peak performance goals, including high-level amateur sailboat race and uh, transitioning into recent times of automobile racing. He was also a very accomplished ultra-endurance triathlete. Again, he's going to get mad at me for saying that because he wasn't one of the fast guys winning awards. But get this, he his foray into the sport of triathlon, inspired by his friend Vito Biala, who's another endurance legend, um, his first triathlon he ever did was the Ultraman in Hawaii, the most difficult triathlon on the face of the earth. It's a three-day ultra, ultra iron distance race where you're swimming for six miles and biking for 200 and something over two days and running 52 miles on the final day. So this was this kind of guy where he'd just take on these challenges. Uh, but as, especially at the end of the show, when you hear this, uh, this story of his foray into sailboat racing and the smashing success that he had, and you're thinking that it's just going to end 
happily ever after with this guy killing all the goals in life and moving through. Uh, there's a surprising twist that I think we all um, can relate very powerfully to. Uh, you know, sort of um, be careful about the goals that you pursue and what they really mean to you. Be careful what you wish for in a way and try to keep this uh, open perspective where you're living in the moment, you're honoring uh, the things that really make you happy and not just buying into uh, the story of society and the rat race that you you should do this or you should be this certain way. Okay, I think that's enough of a tee up for Martin. Let's get to know him and learn about his career, his leadership insights, the great takeaway, especially if nothing else, uh, the proper use of email, telephone, and in-person communication. Great stuff and just a little glimpse of uh, the standard he set at Interwoven to function at the highest level of an organization. Martin Bronze in Silicon Silicon Valley. Enjoy the show. Martin Bronze, retired CEO of Interwoven. Is that still your bio? Uh, Porsche car uh, racer rising up the ranks. What do we call you now? Oh, I don't worry so much about that anymore, Brad. (laughs) But yeah, retired uh, chairman and CEO of a company called Interwoven, which uh, no longer exists independently, but uh, did that for many, many years. And it was a a great sort of final full-time job for me, and I retired after that. So that's how we connected back then in the dot-com days of 1999 to 2002 is when I was there. I remember. And we had, a, we had a, a great run, a really fun time. You gave me a chance to do this dream that I had of corporate wellness and applying my coaching principles and the athletic background that I had. And I thought, you know, I need to go get a job now. I'm retired from the pro circuit. What the heck am I going to do? And uh, it was a, it was a memorable first encounter with you because you were running this young startup software company of 125 employees, and I just kind of cold pitched you. And uh, unlike all the other cold pitches that I threw out to the uh, the, the the exciting Silicon Valley companies, uh, the email back from you was, "Yeah, I'll talk to you from 11 to 11:15 on December 8th. I'll see you then." And it was just uh, kind of uh, indicative of the way that you uh, managed your your business and your life, that you're just, you know, you're willing to take a shot. You're going to give this guy a shot. It's going to be a tight time window because Martin's a busy guy. Uh, but it went over pretty well. And I also remember from that initial meeting that you said, hey, let's give it a try. And it was so simple and straightforward. And you, you kind of grilled me. You know, it was, a, it was a, uh, a high pressure encounter where I had to have my A game. That was my advice from uh, Robles, our mutual friend that uh, kind of uh, gave me the lead. And so we, we set off on this ambition to kind of change the corporate culture at Interwoven, make it healthier and embody some of the things that were really near and dear to you, such as keeping fit, keeping healthy, keeping balanced. So I wanted to get you on the show because there's, I think we got a lot to talk about that's of real value to uh, people who are in the management scene and also trying to aspire to these peak performance goals. I mean, here we are, you know, you're at the top of the heat, man. You retired as a young guy, healthy with your, your wits about you. You have decisions and freedoms. And so um, maybe the first thing is just to kind of go back and, and look at this journey that you took, uh, because I think a lot of people aspire to maybe someday rising up the corporate ladder and being a high-profile person and having a, a windfall event and all these great things. So in your case, you're always giving me this understated vibe where, oh, Brad, I just, you know, I went to San Jose State, I studied hard, I did this, I did that, but um, I'd, I'd love to hear you lay it out, just kind of a, a memory lane here. Oh, my. Well, first, uh, let me just correct you, Brad, because I don't think it was entirely a cold call, as I recall it, because 
I knew you, I knew of you. I'd been competing in triathlons in those days. And I remember, I think, meeting you in the context where you were race announcing some triathlon somewhere. Oh, so mercy. I had met you. It wasn't entirely a cold call. Right. You heard all my off-color jokes that's on the right. mic. You're like, that's who right. is this that's guy? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And we were, uh, you know, it was a high-stress time, a high-stress environment, high-performance, uh, very driven company culture. And um, it did occur to me that we needed, uh, you know, we we weren't in the vein now that you see at, you know, Google or Facebook or any of these uh, unicorn type companies where, you know, we don't we didn't have private chefs or dry cleaning or, you know, on-site massage or any of those things. Napping pods. Yeah, I, we were still a small company, as you point out. I think you're quite right. We were 100, 125 people or so when you joined. And. So we didn't, we didn't, we weren't over the top nuts, but we did want to do something. I did want to do something to help folks. You know, I had too many colleagues that were still smoking and that bothered me. And, you know, too many folks that I, I could see, I was worried about them. They, they had some bad health habits. And I thought, what could we do to, um, you know, inject some wellness into the corporate culture? And you helped do that. And you also write well. So you also did a lot of marketing work, as I recall it, and you did some the more conventional marketing communications work for the company that uh, that I think you did very very well. So it was a hybrid role, as I recall it, and you it, did it both. Mo- it you moved did both into pieces the, well. <laughs> it moved into the hybrid role because we started to have to tone things down a little bit as times got tough, and the, the headcount was uh, well. There was, to that. there was that. There was that. There was that. But we did some fun stuff too. And one of my favorite memories of you was, um, you know, you guys had your big. Uh, uh, global uh, convention, the Gear Up, and you wanted to make a big splash and do something fun. And it was right around the time when Lance Armstrong was at the top of his game. Oh, yes, yes. And yeah. uh, uh, you guys had meetings. This, this was without me, but then you called me in and you said, um, we've decided that we want Lance to be our keynote speaker for the Gear Up. So go, go make that happen. Because I was... Uh, dealing with Lance at that time and we were trying to uh, do a book thing and you know I was connecting with his agent Billy all the time and so you knew that I had that connection with Lance and so right. um, I checked in on that opportunity and it happened that it uh, uh, conflicted with the Olympic Games in Sydney where he eventually won the bronze medal in the time trial and was just coming off this great Tour de France victory so he was a, a hot shot uh, so I had a brief exchange with his agent he said sorry dude he's going from Sydney back to Nice and then training for one more race and it's it's not going to happen and then uh, I went back into your office to report uh, my exchange. And in however many days that took for you guys to get really excited about the term gear up as the name of your convention and how perfect of a fit Lance would be, uh, I walked in and I told you my little spiel and you just started shaking your head back and forth like, no, 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 we need Lance. We, we decided this. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> so. and, and Lance, if I remember right, Lance did us the huge favor of getting essentially getting off the bike in Sydney, getting on a plane and coming to speak at that conference. And I think he was fresh off the plane yeah. uh, when he rolled in and gave a very, um, very, very compelling talk to uh, to the staff and to uh, many of our partners and distributors from around the world. That was a great event. And yeah, and I remember too, he was probably disappointed because he had 
taking just the bronze, right? Just a little, I just mean, the bronze. Yeah. The, these guys, uh, I mean, winning the tour is a thousand times more important to a cyclist yeah. than anything in the Olympics. Same with uh, the golf guy winning the gold medal in Rio. Like, who cares? It's just something fun to to go and do. Whereas the U.S. Open, Masters, British Open is way more important. Yes, but I, I remember leading up to those Olympics, Lance was favored to win. Lance oh, was sure. favorite yeah. to win. So there may have been, he never said this to me, but there may have been some disappointment, uh, you know, in his own uh, mind about just coming back with the bronze. But, you know, sort of true to form, he he manned up and gave a brilliant talk um, uh, at that conference, probably operating on three hours sleep, and he nailed it. So, yeah, that was a triumph. And thank, And now that you remind me about it, thank you for making that happen. Well, I, I called up Billy and I said... Um, uh, Billy, I don't, I don't think you haven't met this Martin Bronze guy yet, but um, he he will not take no for an answer. So we need to make this work. And so this this exchange is how the pre meeting of of Lance, who was at the top of his game, and then you. Like I remember Lance being a little nervous to meet you because you know the way this whole thing went down was pretty heavy handed, and he 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 put up a big number, and, and we met it because it was so important for us. So he was you know well compensated for the thing. But um, I, I remember that exchange. Like uh, he goes, Lance told me like, wow, that guy's. That guy's pretty intense, man. I was kind of nervous to meet him, and then it went so well, and you guys bonded because you had those, you know, similar yeah, type of personality. And I, I think talking right now, we should remind the listeners, like, you know, this was back in the day when he was, you know, on top of the world, a cancer survivor, inspiring thousands of people all over. And I know, you know, the, the empire crumbled and all that stuff, but it really doesn't take away from, like, Not at all. The, the rousing... Uh, uh, delivery that he gave that was completely off the cuff and no note cards or PowerPoint. He just sat on a stool and he said, yeah, man, one day, you know, I was coughing up blood and I went to the doctor. He said, you got cancer, you're screwed. And he just told the whole story straight out. And it was, you know, unforgettable event for everyone in there. So yeah, that led to a a longer deal with him where he kept coming back and doing these, these corporate events for us. And just one of the other fun times at Interworld. Yeah. We, I, if I, as I recall, we were a sort of a second tier sponsor of the U S postal team in those days. And, uh, it was a fun, uh, uh, a fun thing for the employees, fun thing for the company and also the customers. We used, uh, uh, some of those cycling events as, you know, customer appreciation events too. And so the customers got a lot out of it and we, we enjoyed our affiliation with Lance and the team. It was, it was a good thing. So backing up a bit, mm. you're you're a young guy at this time, man. You're in you know, your early to mid forties, running this whole show. How did you get there? If I'm honest, Brad, as a young man, young executive, I don't know that I had even really a clear concept of what a CEO was, and so I can't tell you that at the age of 21 or however young I was when I finished my MBA, um, I don't know that I had a real clear conception in my mind of what a CEO was or does. And, and frankly, when I graduated college, the internet in, in, its, form, in its present form didn't even exist. Right. You know? so, right. so forming a, a software company to manage content on something <laughs> called a website, that, was, that wasn't even right. a, a concept. In You're going to go days. sell something. I'm, well, I'm hey, in those days, your, I mean, I, I, yeah. so I, I did a lot of my career in software, but early on in computing, you got to remember that it was all about hardware. Software was actually a free sort of a tool that came along with your deck mini computer or your IBM mainframe or so forth. So, you know, software as an industry didn't even exist when I was uh, uh, studying in college. So um, 
the industry evolved as my own goals and aspirations evolved, you know, uh, uh, not to go way, way back, but actually I, I entered college as a marine biology major. I wow. was, was going to be a marine biologist and, and I had, uh, I had to work my way through college. So I had a full-time or near full-time job in a sporting goods store, um, uh, working for three brothers who own this business. And uh, they saw something in me, and they kept giving me more and more and more responsibility. Put me in charge of advertising and whatnot. And I was a young man. I was 17, 18 years old, and uh, had my first management responsibilities at, at a very tender age while I was studying to become a marine biologist. And, and um, that job at the sporting goods store was called Tri-City Sporting Goods. doesn't exist anymore. But that job in the... Um, uh, sort of the confidence that the Harash brothers um, placed in me uh, caused me to rethink things. And so I actually changed my major uh, to business and um, uh, embarked really on an international business career because my first language is, you may recall, my first language is actually German. So I thought, you know, bilingual, speak German, speak English. Uh, maybe I can be a fancy jet-setting international business executive. Again, no real clear uh, vision of what that meant, but that is indeed what I did. So I you know, got a bachelor's degree in business, went on, did an MBA, and um, you know took on uh, some international sales roles that led to bigger international sales roles that led to um, an expat assignment in Japan, an expat assignment in uh, Germany and London. So spent the early part of my career really um, in Europe and elsewhere doing international sales work. And um, there was a girl involved. So, uh, so there I was in Munich running a division for my then company called Wise Technology. And Wise, I think, still exists. They're right. now buried somewhere in the bowels of Dell uh, Computing. Uh, but um, I was running the Munich operation, but had started a relationship with a woman that I'm now married to, Margaret. You know Margaret. Um, and she was here in California. So um, I thought, you know, I want to pursue that, and I want to find a way to get back to the States. So um, heading out there to these assignments, I suppose these were all escalating opportunities that you couldn't turn down if you're trying to climb. That's right. No, yeah. I climbed the ladder, you know, first from individual contributor to, you know, team lead or manager or whatever it might oh, have been. I, I remember then, that term, Martin. Yeah. Uh, when when we, we were having some of these, we'd have these career direction meetings in your office, sort of like off the record, and you'd say, Brad, you're an individual contributor. So, yeah, <laughs> well, I meant no insult. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> you know, instead of like, and, and people need to figure out, like, you know, to, to, to work their strengths and, and stay away from their weaknesses right. and either pursue a management track or an individual contributor track. The world needs individual contributors, and I spent more than ever. I spent, yeah, I spent the early part of my career as one. Oh, right? so as what was one. that like as a salesperson? Are you calling that? That's right. I, I started yeah. as a with no person. no management as much as That's right. closing That's deals. Right. That's right. right. That's okay. right. And you know, uh, look, I I like the sales profession. I think it is a uh, you know, it's an absolutely honorable and uh, important way to start a career, make a whole career. Um, it is absolutely measurable. And I know you're mm. about performance and so forth. And so you, you, you can't beat sales for measurable, accountable, and also if you're a gratification junkie, you get that too. You know, every quarter you've either made your number or not. 
Every quarter, you're either in accelerators or not. Every year, you either go to President's Club or not. And so sales is a great um, career, and it gives you a lot of feedback. And you have to be thick-skinned and um, manage yourself and your own psyche well. Mm. Uh, and, you know, work hard on improving your game. And you're competing. You're competing um, with your peers all the time, every quarter. For who's on the top of the leaderboard, who's bringing in, uh, you know, the most revenue or the most new accounts or whatever it is that's being valued at that particular company. So I, I did start in sales, and it was um, uh, it was a great beginning to a career. And then, you know, eventually I, I did move into management, and then took on sales and marketing roles, and became a vice president, and just climbed the ladder from from there. And then, of course had lots of board level interactions and CEO mm. level interactions and started to refine sort of my own aspirations for what were perhaps the next things I wanted to do. And at some point, probably in my early thirties, I conceived of the, you know, the notion of becoming a CEO. Uh, so prior to that, when these, when these opportunities came up, was this sort of reactive, like, Hey, there's a management role open and we're going to offer it to you because you're a good sales guy and you, you kind of had to assess on the spot? Or did you have a vision in mind where you thought you might progress from individual contributor to manager? Well, a lot of it was opportunistic and, and driven by, you know, one door opens. You, you don't unfortunately have a menu of six items to choose from at every juncture in your career, right? Often it's one specific opportunity or a battlefield promotion because so-and-so has resigned and, hey, now we need a director. You know, so uh, some of it was very opportunistic, but I did have at least a notion of where I wanted to go. And, and, and to me, it was always climbing to the next, uh, you know, the next rung in the corporate ladder. Um, and uh, was, um, you know, fortunate. I had some great mentors that saw something in me mm. and gave me opportunities probably way ahead of when I was really ready for them. But that, you know, that forced me, when you're in the deep end of the pool, that forced me to, to learn and up my game and, and work on self-improvement and uh, and dig deeper. Uh, so I had some great mentors, too, uh, and, that, and that needs to be said, some real... Uh, some guys that saw something in me and helped me and mentored me and developed me and, you know, gave me stern talkings to when I needed them as well. Well, the sporting goods guys, that's that's interesting because these are those uh, profound turning points in life where it's just a random teenager job. But look what it did. Yeah, I, mean, I, gi I give the Harash brothers a lot of credit for launch launching me, frankly, on my business career. Yeah. yeah. And so the other times when you had these mentors see something in you, um, what did they see, and how did it how did it how did it get brought out? I I think um, I can't speak for them, but I think what they saw and what I often see now in young younger men and women that I mentor is a mindset that is I like to say uh, sort of an owner's mentality rather than a renter's mentality. Uh, and and what I mean there, Brad, is you know when you're renting an apartment you think about it in a certain way. You, I mean, you don't probably care for it and you don't, um, you know, really look after it with, with love and attention, right? You're renting and you may rent it for six or seven months and then you're on to the next thing. Or, a nice party at the end to blow everything out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a renter's mentality and there's an owner's mentality. And so what I look for in, in younger people that I mentor now is, do they see themselves? Do they behave 
like an owner in the company, irrespective of how many stock options they have and whether they're really an owner or not. How are they operating? Are they operating in the company's best interest with the shareholders in mind and, you know, the maybe the long-term view in mind? And so I look for that. I look for an ownership mentality in the business. And I'm hoping that some of my early mentors probably saw that passion and that drive on behalf of the company in me. Well, I'm also thinking of the ownership mentality with your own behavior. And instead of making excuses, there's people that either make excuses, tell stories, or they take ownership and accountability for everything that happens to them. Yeah, exactly. Their ownership in that sense, sort of taking personal accountability for all your actions. That's another meaning of the term. But I'm looking, when I say owner, I'm looking really more for a mindset about how they feel about the company. They feel like it's my company, irrespective of whether that's strictly true or not. They're, they're that driven. They're that passionate about the company, about the company's business. And they take it personally. They want to make that quarter because it's their company. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean when I say owner mentality. And you're right. There's also the ownership and accountability. Probably for, goes hand in hand. Yeah, it does. The same people are in the same, the exactly. same group there. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Same, same sort of mindset. Yeah. Uh, is that innate, you think? These people are just finding their way to these opportunities? Or is this something that you can develop with mentorship? I think so. I, I think, you know, those who are parents... Those who are parents would probably tell you one of the most pivotal things uh, for the development of young people is what friends do they choose? What play groups do they have and what peers do they hang around with? And so I think by choosing which gang you're hanging around with at the water cooler at the company mm. and which peers you admire or seek to emulate, that too can be very important in your career. You know, who do you surround yourself with? The guys that are always griping and complaining and um, griping about management or the people that are looking hard at the root cause of the problem, worrying about the customer first and foremost and driving progress in the business. So where, where, where do you associate? Where do you align yourself and how do you think? That's again, that sort of ownership of your own sort of actions and your own attitudes, right? So you got going back as a teenager at the, at the sporting goods shop. Yeah. And <clears throat> do you ever identify any times along the journey where you were off your game? Or did you always have this ownership mentality and this drive and this focus to, to go for the next thing and, and perform and hit those numbers every single quarter, every year? Oh, gosh. I think I was always pretty driven. You know, um, um, you know graduated high school early. I did uh, two college degrees in five years instead of the customary six or eight. Uh, so I was always, I always had a sense of urgency about everything I was doing and about my career. And as I admitted to you a minute ago, um, sometimes I got in way over my head uh, mm. and took on responsibilities that were two or three or four sizes too big for what I really was at the time. You probably said, sure, though, with that, that confidence sure, where I you, figured you it talk out. someone you know, into it. And they said, this guy will this guy, this guy wing. Oh, but gosh, but, you know, I, I will tell you, and I think you know this, I've had career failures, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, gosh, I still remember one of the, uh, the, the company I worked for right out of graduate school was closed down by the sheriff's department for non-payment of debt. All things I didn't know, right? I was I was an individual contributor, <laughs> uh, but came to work one day and found the sheriff's had padlocked the door <laughs> and pasted a notice on the door. And that's how I lost my first 
you know, post-college job, right? So uh, sure, I've had setbacks uh, and, and I've actually been fired from jobs. Uh, uh, it, it happens. Uh, the, I think the key is... Gosh, to, I can't imagine that, Mark. You bet. That must, be, that must be a tough feeling. I don't know what it's like to get fired from jobs, so I don't know. It's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not wishing it for you, Brad, yeah, but yeah. it, well, it, it is depending on what you do with it. It's, right, it's really right. character building and useful. Yeah. And uh, if you reflect on it and you know, think about what things were in your control, what things were out of your control, what might you do differently if confronted with the same challenges, it, it can be useful. And in fact, these days, you know, I, I still sit on some corporate boards and I help with hiring mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm not actively working, but I, you know, I keep my hand in it a bit. And when I read resumes now and look at even senior executives for some of my companies, uh, I'm looking for failure. I'm looking for, hmm, looks like he or she really went splat there at that point in their career. And I ask questions about that. And I, I, I'm not so interested in whether or not the person failed. I'm interested in what they learned from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what lessons, because let's face it, the, the company we're considering them for will have challenges and may have similar challenges. And I want to understand what sort of um, uh, lessons they took from career failures or business failures or whatnot. Well, I suppose when, when the interview candidate is, asking that, is asked that question, you're getting your first insight to whether they're going to BS their way out of it and, and blame somebody, or they're going to say, yeah, you know what, I, I, I was in over my head, I was four rungs above my pay grade, and I, I thought I could do it, and I was overconfident, and the hubris took me down, or whatever they say. That's right. You're, it, looking, yeah. for a, you're looking for a mature <clears throat> and, and nuanced answer, and one that, especially if I'm looking at a senior executive, which these days is sort of, you know, I'm not hiring entry-level people, but I'm, I'm interviewing people for vice president roles or CMO roles. And what you're looking for is someone who outlines, you know, the, the nature of the business problem that uh, gave them the challenge and talks in a sophisticated way about what they would have done differently and why and what mistakes were made and why. That's what you're looking for. And you're looking for that ownership that accountability. And, you know, when there are problems, you're looking for senior executives that own them, that take accountability and don't say, oh, well, my VC investors were bad investors or my board was uh, incompetent or uh, that is a victim mentality. And that's not what you're looking for, right? You're looking for a mature ownership sort of response. What if it's true? And they're telling you from the bottom of their heart that their, their partner was a crook or something like that. Those things do happen, sure. Right. Sure, uh, that's right, they're, they're, exactly. But, but still, uh, still in all, even in a, in a case where the partner is a criminal. Oh, why did you decide to partner with that guy? What part of you was, was weak yeah, or where, deficient? W- w- your, your own judgment at some point, uh, you know, you, 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 say, you have to own even that. You right. have to own even oh, that for sure. to a degree. Yeah. To a degree. And yeah. yes, do, do bad or random things happen? Sure, and I, 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 that, that's absolutely understandable. But yeah, even in a my partner was a crook scenario, what could or should you have done differently? And if similar dynamics unfold in our company here, how will you handle them differently? I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new 
zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Hey man, how's your sexual function? Oh, uncomfortable talking about it? Look, we talk about our injured knees, our belly fat, so it's time to get focused on function. I want to tell you about Gainswave. This is a cutting-edge protocol where a handheld device sends low-intensity shock waves into your penile blood vessels to stimulate a healing response and promote increased blood circulation and the growth of new blood vessels. A skilled practitioner puts the Gainswave magic wand onto your magic wand, and after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results. Gainswave reports an 80% success rate. Now, we know that popping pills is a popular penile protocol, but when you're working with clogged pipes, you just get a temporary band-aid effect when you take prescription drugs. Gainswave addresses the cause of age-related decline by stimulating growth factors and activating dormant stem cells. Translation, stronger, harder, more sustainable erections. I learned about Gainswave from my podcast guest, Dr. Judson Brandeis at the Brandeis MD Clinic in Northern California, and there's a robust network of Gainswave providers that you can find on their website near you. Complete a series of treatments, and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. 
It's a tune-up for your equipment. And while it's great for ED, Gaines Wave is for any man that wants to combat the effects of aging and get a little boost for your A-game. So please visit GainesWave.com slash Brad. That's G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E dot com slash B-R-A-D to find a practitioner in your area. And you can take advantage of my special promotion. Buy six treatments and get one free. You have nothing to lose and lots to gain from gainswave.com slash Brad. Yeah, so if you enjoy hearing about failures in the interviews, uh, <laughs> what, about, what about a point uh, in your career where you can now go back and realize that you used poor judgment or you didn't do your due diligence or something where you're going to take um, some, some acknowledgement? Some ownership myself, eh? Well, I do remember um, among my several... Um, failures, I did take a uh, position as a chief operating officer in a young company that I won't name, but it was a young company where the board wanted to take the company public, felt that perhaps they needed a different CEO, someone other than the founder, and wanted to cultivate that person, um, which all makes good sense and uh, open this position for a chief operating officer, which ended up being me. So I took that role and very quickly learned that I should have asked more questions. Was this your first uh, chief role that was so exciting that you had this chance? That's right. So you That's jumped right. I, was, I, was, yeah. I was thrilled to get uh, my first, you know, chief operating officer. Beware role. being thrilled with a job offer, peeps. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. But but do be thorough uh-huh. in your questions. So yeah, it was a it was a chance to become a CEO in a very promising company. But the on ramp was going to be as chief operating officer, and I had skills in that area. And this was a company where my sales and marketing background was was probably appropriate and so forth. But what I didn't really understand is that this whole transition to bring in a new CEO was the board's idea. The founder himself didn't actually agree. So uh, the, the struggle ensued almost immediately. I came on board as chief operating officer, but the founder, CEO, um, really was not on board <laughs> with wow. the whole notion of a transition. So I got into the middle of that and very quickly... Um, you know, that we decided not to work together. Well, congratulations. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, this, this is a pattern that happens in relationships and all kinds of areas of life where you don't extricate yourself for whatever reason. In this case, this is a big deal and a big job, but you, you were able to bail quickly. Well, yeah, so. but in, you know, in hindsight, again, taking personal accountability for that particular failure, I didn't ask uh, all the right questions mm-hmm. up front. Uh, and, and really, it, it came down to whether this man really had the intent of turning over the CEO role. And it, it just wasn't what he wanted to do. And there hadn't yet been the full dialogue at the board level about what they wanted to do, right? They had kind of hoped that this would all innocently and happily work out. And then I'd be promoted to CEO and everyone would agree. Uh, but it hadn't been fully baked at the board level. And I wasn't asking the right questions. Um, in that case. Okay, so now you're off and running from this experience, richer for it, wiser, more trepidatious, Richer in experience, anyway. Richer in experience. (laughs) All the other parts are not going to happen. But uh, then uh, I I love to tell that um, wonderful 
starting point story of how Interwoven got going, because it did turn out to be a huge success. But it sounds like you applied a lot of that life experience to make a, a, a great fit this time around. Well, the, the Interwoven thing was a great uh, story. And for those that don't remember it, it, you know, it was... Uh, it was sort of the, not the beginning of the internet or the web, but it was a, a juncture in the development of the internet. We're talking the late 1990s here, so some time ago, right? Um, the web was uh, booming and growing, and e-commerce was on fire. Amazon had started, you know, so there, there was, this was the early days of the very big internet boom. But there were some missing pieces there um, in terms of infrastructure. And one of the many things that was missing in those early days of the web was a proper, uh, what we initially called a content management system, sort of a infrastructure software for the building and maintenance and upkeep and archival of websites. How do you get 20 colleagues to collaborate together and put up a website and put up pricing and put up data sheets and put out press releases on the internet and still have a process and approval routing and what's called workflow for getting that done uh, in a way that isn't chaos, right? Uh, how do you do that? What are the bones and what is the infrastructure for hanging together and cobbling together one of these big, maybe even multi-language Websites, right? Spanish, English, French, simultaneously content launched across all the world. That is a big job, and infrastructure is needed for that. And that's what Interwoven did. We, we sort of invented that category and were the early uh, clear leader in that space. So this is like back-end software that you don't see when you're the user of Southwest Airlines and you're just trying to book a flight. That's right. But behind the scenes, someone is updating the departure times and then working on that big project and then, boom, pushing it live. That's right. That's, that's right. where you don't want the that's chaos. Right. And that, that kind of software is, is in use today. So, yes, everyone that is consuming a website today, somewhere uh, behind that experience is a web content management system of some sort. If it's a small business, maybe one person is uh, involved in putting in that content. But in these larger corporations, it is hundreds of white-collar, typically white-collar knowledge workers who are inputting content, marketing content, product content, pricing content, press release information. Public companies are putting earnings information out and other uh, you know, very important sorts of uh, uh, disclosures are made on websites nowadays, and that all happens in a content management system. So anyway, in, in the late 90s, those really didn't exist. And Interwoven was not founded by me. I want to be very, very clear. It was founded by a, a brilliant man who is uh, you know, a dear friend to this day by the name of Peng Ong, O-N-G. Uh, and Peng is, Peng is uh, living back in Singapore now. But he was the founder of the business and uh, did a great job with the, the early architecture of the software. And, uh, and you know, when I met the company, uh, it had been around for about three years. Uh, hadn't, hadn't shipped any three product Three years, yet. Yeah. wow. Well, you know, it takes time to yeah. develop this software. So the, the company wasn't even close to selling a product. Well, very close, it, very close. The product I mean, for the was first late. three years, it was just development. Development. Startup. Development yeah. and, 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 and <clears throat> iterations with early customers, right? Dialogue with, with customers you think you want to target about how should it work? How should it feel? How should it look? Hey, we mocked this up. Would you take a look at it? Is this what you had in mind? So that's the product development um, process. And ideally, it goes a little faster than three years, but uh, it did, in this case, take about three years for them to get 
to a stage where they had, let's call it a 1.0, version 1.0 of the product. And, and that's when um, I got introduced to the company uh, and uh, uh, had a bunch of meetings and dialogue and uh, with the team and then with uh, you know, potential investors as well and uh, so forth. Uh, and there was some uh, wheeling and dealing going on with the money coming in if Martin Bronze would, would join or something to that no, effect, No, no, right? no, 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 that, that's not accurate. Uh, the, the, <laughs> um, so, yeah, what, what needs to be said is this, is this was a high potential company that, that had some challenges. The product was late, not entirely finished. They hadn't had any revenue yet, and they were running out of money, honestly, there were, however, and, and one in particular, uh, my, my dear friend, now deceased, Catherine Gould, was the founding partner of a venture capital firm, very successful venture capital firm called Foundation Capital. And she was one of the founding partners there and had been tracking this little company, Interwoven, actually for some years. She, she got it about the need for this kind of web infrastructure. She liked enough about the team. She liked Peng Ong immensely. But she was reluctant to invest uh, for a bunch of reasons, one of which was there was no professional CEO in the business. So that's sort of when I got introduced to the company. They had started a search for a CEO, and an old mentor and friend of mine from, uh, from the search business had suggested that I ought to go in and see them. So that's how I met. That's how I met Peng and Catherine in the very early days of Interwoven. So this tracking, is that commonplace where they're just watching these little guys operate and see if they can you shine good, a little bit? Good VCs do that. They, they meet regularly with companies that they're interested in. They haven't put any money down yet, but they're tracking and they're, they're sort of seeing how well the company executes on the milestones they've talked about. And they are uh, watching to see how the, the first customer implementations or two or three go. You bet. Good VCs like Catherine do that level of, um, oh, shall we say kissing of frogs, right? They're, they're going up and down Silicon Valley meeting young, often very raw, very fragile young startups and uh, talking with these founders about what they're doing and why and tracking them. Well, somebody must have been putting in money from the start, uh, unless it was out of Peng's pocket or something. It, it was Peng, <laughs> friends and family, some, some very, oh, wow. very small investments. There was an early, early seed investment from a, uh, an iconic firm called Draper Fisher Jurvetson. They had made a very small investment to get them going, you know, to, to, uh, to fund some of the early development. So there had been a little bit of money put in in a seed round. But it was now time to raise millions, mm. and that wasn't going to happen unless the company got a professional CEO that uh, you know gave comfort to the investors. So that early seed money, these are the things that pay off to the tune of five hundred times because they are taking a little bit of a chunk, even though they're giving him a hundred grand or something. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, but it, that, that seed, that seed round venture capital, uh, that's a that's a brave business. Because the, the odds of success are, are low. I mean, a lot of these seed investments get written off. Right. Um, I mean, and, Sisson talks about this, where he's given out a token to 10 companies. 
knowing that he'll probably fail on nine of those and he'll eat the entire investment. But I think it's a little different from that. It's not it's not really one in ten. It's probably more like one in a hundred. So basically we're we're reading about the success stories and the zillionaires that started and invested ten thousand dollars in Facebook and now it's this. Uh, so we're talking about a huge failure rate. Uh, the failure rate is huge and it's under-publicized, right? <laughs> because we glamorize all these successes. But yeah, there are lots and lots, hundreds of startups that, you know, attract two or three employees. They develop some product and end up, for, for, for good reasons, not going forward because the idea was bad. There's already a competition there. Uh, some larger player adds that functionality to their suite. And so now the idea is moot. These businesses fail for all sorts of mundane and sometimes dramatic reasons. But yeah, the, the failures don't get publicized enough. The failure rate is high. So this, this startup, this, the term itself is romanticized. We've got the TV shows on Netflix and then the success stories yes. of the, the zillionaires that started in the dorm room doing the, the, the book face or whatever the initial name was. Um, but to, to hear that level of failure uh, is kind of surprising because you think these are the geniuses that are working in their garage day and night to build software. But um, Yeah, those, the, the, those are very rare. They should be celebrated. Good for them. But there are lots and lots of failures there. And I think one of the things that especially younger people need to keep in mind, I I see too often people coming right out of college and then rolling into a startup because they're entrepreneurial. They have that urge and they go from startup to startup to startup. I would. Well, plus, if you're if you're trying to pick up chicks and you say, I work for a startup, you're I mean, what else can you say? Oh, I'm working for uh, Cisco right now. I'm in the, uh, uh, the, the the warehouse. No way, man. I'm working a startup. Well, this guy's working a startup. Hey, okay. Well, it's it's glamorized, uh, <laughs> but uh, again, people ought to bear in mind this high failure rate. And the, the, when I uh, mentor younger uh, professionals, I encourage them to consider um, not going right to a startup out of school. Instead, go to what we used to call a finishing school company. Go to a larger, doesn't have to be a mega corporation. I'm not suggesting IBM or General Motors or anything like that. But go to a larger, maybe it's a mid-stage company or an already public company, one where there are thousands of employees and hundreds of executives where a young person can come in and get some mentorship and work under a vice president or a director who's got 10 or 20 years experience and really do what I call a finishing school. Get, you know, get their first uh, product plan written and shot down by, you know, savvy, experienced <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> instead, of, instead of your first product planner gets high fives all around with the other four guys at your startup. That's right. Who, who, the, the four knuckleheads who are also 22 <laughs> years old and have never seen one before might not be the best audience. Dude, this rocks. Great propo- great business plan. For instance, for instance. So, you know, uh, go somewhere where there are established processes and successes and failures and, you know, um, uh, a locker room full of seasoned executives that can mentor and help. Maybe don't stay there forever. Don't do your whole, your whole life in a large corporation. If you have these entrepreneurial urges, Absolutely, go pursue them, but get some more equipment first. Get some more experience. Get a little more seasoning first. And study at the knee of an experienced, savvy vice president 
let's say, of a function where you can learn a thing or two and get the experience of presenting to the executive staff, maybe. Get the experience of making a boardroom presentation, uh, but in a more structured, more mature yeah. environment where you can get some nurturing. Real board members, not like grandma, grandma's bridge partner, exactly. all that stuff. Exactly. Um, so the the interwoven story survived that grassroots stage. They've been going for three years. They have a viable product, maybe, and they're running out of money. So they're kind of levered. They're they're kind of jumping to the next step in the uh, in the journey right. to successful IPO. Let's say, and right. that is the the round of funding. What do you call that? Uh, well, the the round of funding we needed, and I think this is correct. I I'd have to check my notes, but I think it was Series B. I think our, our our first round of funding before my joining the company was this small seed round. I think that was the Series A, the first formal round of funding, very small, and I think we were looking to raise. Six or seven million with the Series B, if I recall correctly. And that was where uh, I got involved with the company. And Catherine Gould at Foundation Capital and I agreed sort of to leap in together. And it was a, it was a great, I still remember the lunch meeting. It was, um, it was a little bit right out of central casting, as, as it happens. <laughs> For both of you? you For mean? both of us, yeah. It was the classic cocktail napkin story we hear we hear about we hear about this but we i can tell you the name of the restaurant we were sitting at lunch at a little italian place and she said well look i'll invest in this thing i'll lead the round but only if you join as ceo and i said well i'll join as ceo but only if you lead the round what's the round gonna look like and we got out a cocktail napkin and we sketched the outline of the of the financial terms for the funding round and so I leapt in, she leapt in, uh, we, we got XL Partners, another iconic venture capital firm involved in the round. I think we got Roger McNamee at Integral Capital involved in the round. So we, we filled out the round with some other investors and uh, got the thing funded. I joined the company, we started growing the thing, and um, a year and a half later we took it public. A year and a half. A year and a half That's later. That's a race course, huh? So, yeah, I joined in early 98, and by October, I think, October of 99, we took it public. Uh, is that... A pretty fast track? Is that normal for I that think that's, uh, time? I think that's some or? sort of a speed record, I would think. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting, um, I'm not suggesting that, that other companies try to set that sort of a pace. And, you know, that was a more permissive time. Younger, smaller companies were going public in the late 90s. That, that wouldn't even be conceivable today. But we did. We went public in 1999. Uh, we grew very rapidly. At one point in time, we were the fastest growing publicly traded company um, in in that particular year. The IPO itself, I think, was the number three best performing IPO of, of the year 1999. So we had some successes. The, the company grew very, very rapidly and well. I think at one point our market capitalization was $6 billion or something like that. And then the internet bubble burst. Um, Interwoven was... Uh, uh, immune from some of the early shock waves of the internet bubble burst thing, but we too had trouble. Uh, and IT spending, you know, we were IT meaning the information technology spending budgets of all of our customers and potential customers, more importantly, were cut, 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 cut. Uh, not only because of the the internet bubble implosion, but we also had September 11th right around that time, and that was a big shock factor too to corporate spending. 
Um, and so both of those whammies were difficult even for interwoven. And we had, we had a lot of hard work ahead of us and um, had to do painful layoffs and restructure the business. And we went on to make a series of acquisitions that helped transform the product portfolio. And that's really when the real work started. Oh, mercy. I mean, the real work must have started when you jumped on board with, what was it, a handful of employees? And then how did you... How did that adding of the headcount go? I remember it was just frenzied, like there was no office space and you were coming up to the all-hands meeting, people sharing three to a cube and saying, I'm, I'm looking at a lease, I promise we're about to get a building. It was just crazy times. It was crazy times. Yeah, I, I came on board as employee number 28. And I think um, a year later, we were up to 150 people and, and growing very rapidly. There were some weeks, Brad, and you remember this, you were, you were part of that period where we were adding you know, 10 people a week uh, sometimes just to try to keep up with the demand and the growth and, you know, the international scale out of the business. So, yeah, there was some some heady growth times. And, and you know, in hindsight, probably some sloppiness, you know, the lack of process, lack of structure, uh, headlong, headlong growth with um, mistakes, uh, mistakes involved for sure. Oh, I imagine you absolutely knew that and were knowing that 10% of your hires were going to be a bust or whatever, but just it was, it seemed like that, that, that race was always in the background. Like we have to hurry, hurry and, uh, can't be. That's right. A high sense of urgency and, and, uh, uh, the market was buoyant and, and we were capitalizing on it. Um, and then of course, as I said, after the internet bubble burst, then there was real work to do. And, and (laughs) some of the sloppiness that had, perhaps crept in during the, the heady growth times, we had to clean all that up and get discipline and put process in and, and yes, cut, you know, very good colleagues. These were good people making real contributions, but we just didn't have the revenue anymore to support the headcount. So sadly, you know, we had to let lots of very good talented people go in those days and really lean the business out again. And build it up from there. And, and, uh, you know, as I recall it, we, we got the business turned around very, very well and, you know, delivered, uh, I forget now, 12 or 14 uh, successive revenue and profit growth quarters. And, and then I retired. So before we get into the retirement, which is there's some fun stuff to talk about there, this sounds like you had completely disparate skills that were called upon. And when we were in that growth phase, I remember some of the greatest attributes you had is you were so positive and optimistic and enthusiastic and and open and engaging with people. And it was just a great, fun place to work. And you were leading that vibe of like, hey, let's, you know, let's let's make this a happy, healthy workplace and work-life balance was always talked about. And then you kind of had to you had this, I guess, a transition in your in your leadership duties where it was time to really uh get into these numbers and let good people go and maybe uh, toughen up in your engagements with whoever, the investors. I mean, how did that go from calling upon, it seemed like, what are you going to do today, Martin? Oh, fire some people or hire some people? It it seemed like an an incredible juxtaposition there. Yeah, you're you're sketching it as if it was a complete pivot, and I, I wouldn't agree with that. You know, yes, we um, stressed work-life balance uh, in those heady, let's call it the, the pre-internet bubble implosion. Uh, we stressed those things, but we stressed those things after too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so I don't I don't think it was a hundred and eighty degree shift, but um, uh, yeah, we we had to really get leaner and meaner 
and um, reinvent the business in a lot of ways. So we had to change a lot. The product portfolio had to change. The sales processes had to change. The marketing had to change. Um, but the focus on work-life balance, I don't think changed. We didn't throw that out. Uh, we kept that up. Uh, and we worked hard before the internet bubble implosion to keep up with the growth. And we worked hard after to deal with the slowing in growth. And we dealt with it, you know, as, as best we could with the best information we had at the time. And even then, maybe we didn't make perfect decisions all the time. But, you know, we, we moved quickly um, with the best data we had at the time to resize and readjust and pivot the business. And we did it, you know, in hindsight, we did it well. Wow, that's a great recurring theme going that you're working hard, you're working hard to grow, and then you're working hard to, uh, to shrink optimize. and regrow, shrink yeah. and regrow. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, and the work-life balance, I, I, you know, since I was there and part of it, and that was my job, it was, you know, it was the real deal. Where you know, coming from the top, it's so important. And we have that Ariana Huffington example that's bantered about now with her sleep book, where she's really big on taking naps and prioritizing sleep. And so she would leave her curtains open in the office at Huffington Post to the glass walls of her office with a do not disturb sign on the door so people could walk by and see her crashed out for her afternoon nap and, and you know, spreading that message that it was okay and in fact, uh, you know, uh, encouraged in the workplace if the leader's doing it. And, you know, what was great was seeing you training for the triathlons and, and doing these uh, fitness endeavors and then having me come in there and train all willing employees to do the same thing and go participate in the, the, the triathlon that Interwoven sponsored or getting into the healthy food. And we had the healthy foods delivered and all that great stuff. And um, it, I think it really did have an impact. I'm, I'm just wondering... It, it doesn't seem to have uh, caught on like on a, on a large scale across corporate America yet, uh, even though the payoff seems to be obvious. Well, Brad, I think um, the payoff is obvious. And if you wanted to approach it in a um, financial payback sense, uh, there's good math behind the fact that a you know, healthy workforce is a more productive work, workforce and uh, ultimately maybe even uh, insurance costs and healthcare costs can be reduced if you have a non-smoking fit um, healthy workforce. There's no question about that. And I think there's good data out there on that. But I, I think one of the points you make when you mention Ariana Huffington and we'll just broaden it to leaders in general you know, leaders and let's say maybe aspiring leaders who are listening to this broadcast need to remember how important setting an example is in shaping the culture. So I never thought of the take a nap during the workday idea. That never occurred to me, and it's not something I ever did. But yeah, I was the kind of CEO who would uh, go down later, you know, when we had proper facilities with uh, showers and lockers and so forth. I would go down and Go for a run at lunch. And all the employees would, not all the employees, but many employees would see me do that. And word would spread, hey, the boss is out going for a 45-minute jog at lunch. And then I would, you know, eat at my desk afterward and, and keep working. But it made it okay for other people to go out um, uh, go out uh, for a run at lunch or whatnot. And I remember I used to regularly, when I didn't have outside meetings, I would regularly bicycle to work. And folks would see that. And Others emulated it. So, yeah, the, the leader, whether it's Ariana Huffington with her naps or whatever it is, um, leaders need to be aware that they're modeling behavior, good and bad, good and bad. So, uh, you know, uh, 
bad practices that the, the leader is caught or seen doing um, become, you know, okay and condoned. And um, uh, so, you know, it's just something to be very, very mindful of as a leader or aspiring leader. It would also seems to be okay or, or even romanticized today is this, uh, this work ethic to the point of exhaustion. And to me, I, I, I question how this whole thing uh, became part of culture where, I mean, we know in the endurance athlete scene that McNaughton gave this great quote on one of the, one of the primal endurance podcasts. He says, endurance athletes are not satisfied with their training until they've trained to exhaustion. And it's spot on where we, we don't think that we're progressing or we're making, we're achieving our, our, our objectives until we're, until we're fried and we get, get, get to that point. And in the workplace, even during those, the heyday of, uh, interwoven's work-life balance and all these fun things that I do at lunchtime, like the breathing and stretching ritual. You had people that were getting in there at 9 a.m. and leaving at 2 a.m. and had no work-life balance whatsoever. And uh, in a lot of ways, in a, in a broader sense, um, this is celebrated. Yeah. Well, I think the athlete analogy is a pretty good one, Brad. And you were a vastly, vastly better athlete than I ever was. But we both know it's about pacing, right? And and I would encourage people on the corporate side to bear in mind that this isn't a sprint. Um, it's not even a half marathon. The, the you, you said that during dot-com time when we were growing as the fast, fastest software growing company. So yeah, right. that, it, that isn't a sprint. It's so not if it's a not a sprint it's then. Not a sprint. It is yeah. a it's a, you know, for building the proper company for the long term uh, that, that should survive for 30, 40 years or longer, right? If that's what we're doing. Same with a career, right? We, <laughs> and, and yes, you're playing your career for, sadly, you know, you're not going to retire at age 30 or whatnot. You are probably going to have a 30 or 40 year career. And so plan accordingly, uh, which comes back maybe to some of the... Um, uh, early career moves about, you know, not trying to knock the ball out of the park in your very first job, right? Build your career methodically, go to the finishing school company, pick up some extra skills. You know, so yeah, mm. it, pacing pacing is a good thought for not only career planning, but in, in the context we were in the point we were just on about burnout. You know, you got to bear in mind too, you're building a company here and that's a, a 10, 20, 30 year process and you need to pace yourself accordingly. Um, throwing in, you know, three 15-hour days in succession um, may be needed from time to time, but doing that chronically and repeatedly, it's just not, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. So yes, you have to have some work-life balance. And I am, I am okay with employees not responding to email at 11 at night or one in the morning. Uh, I am okay with that. And I am okay with employees, for the most part. I mean, if you've got a, a critical financing underway or a, a, it's the end of quarter and a major deal needs to get closed, then yes, you work weekends too. But I'm, in general, I'm okay with employees not, not being online on weekends. You know, that's family time. And so, for the most part, uh, those, those norms need to be respected and instilled by the leader. Again, back to the leader modeling the behavior. If the CEO is sending emails on a Sunday morning and expecting mm. answers by Sunday afternoon, then he sets um, a behavior norm there and he sets a tone 
that has consequences, yeah, may, may have consequences. Um, Jack Welch's book, uh, I'm sorry to pick on him, but it's, it was an unforgettable uh, paragraph where he was talking about how, you know, he was, he was totally focused on his career and it was expected that he'd show up in, in the office on weekends. And so everyone under him, you know, he, he, he drove that expectation and he said there was a lot of consequences. And then the next sentence was, for instance, comma, my children. So his children were, for instance, not my children at the start of the sentence, but for instance, my children, I didn't really get to be a dad, you know, someone else handled that. And it was like, wow. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and, and in hindsight, uh, in, in hindsight, I'm sure Jack Welch perhaps regretted some of those choices. But you just got to be mindful about what what tone are you setting, what example are you setting, and is it really what you want? Is is it the norm of behavior that you want in the business? And what I want to get deeper with you is like you you did pace yourself, you did put a high priority on your health, your fitness, your healthy eating, your sleep, all those things subject to some of those road trips where you were coming back pretty pretty beat up from whatever the re- repeated meetings with investors or these stages of your career that were pretty sure, tough sure there are there are peak uh, you know there are peak periods where you do put in the the, the all nighter or the 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 15 hour days and and it wasn't just me i mean the rest of the team is team efforts absolutely a high performance team that we had there and i remember uh, crunch times when we had engineers uh, you know, pulling all-nighters and sleep. You know, we had a, let's say, uh, I remember one example where we had let a key customer down and there was a bug in the software that was causing serious issues for one of our important clients. Our engineers slept under their desks to get that fixed within, I think we turned around the major fix uh, in 48 hours, which was uh, a Herculean effort. Um, so it wasn't just me. It was, uh, you know, everyone in the, in the, in the company was when needed doing whatever it took a huge difference from the chronic pattern not overworking yeah, you can't sustain that right. you and can't sustain that the other thing i'll uh, speculate is that if you were if you were doing that because of whatever it is um lack of personal discipline to um to to balance your life uh, i'm going to speculate that you're going to be being less productive less effective well you know that, that you're making a great point brad um you got to be a little suspicious of that kind of heroism. I don't know if you remember the, the the little chat I used to give about quadrant two. I had a it was actually I think the the author Stephen Covey right. uh, initially coined this, but the the notion of you know being aware of what's urgent and important, but maybe what's important and not yet urgent. So it's important in, when you're building a corporate culture or or just managing a team. Celebrating heroism is done a lot, right? And, and, we, it, and it is in the American culture and the American corporate culture, it's celebrated. You know, the sales guy that brings in the multi-million dollar deal uh, on the stroke of midnight on the last day of the quarter, he's celebrated. And, you know, rightly so. He did something material and, and uh, maybe critical for the company, right? Or the software engineer that sleeps under his desk and, and gets that last important line of code done. That's great. But I, I think it's important to celebrate people who plan appropriately and get their work done in a paced and measured way maybe that code gets written uh, over a period of weeks yeah how did that bug happen in the first place exactly sloppy 2 a.m and i would i would uh, assert maybe that the quality of the work 
in the software or in the writing or whatever the work product happens to be, the quality of the output is going to be vastly better if it's something that's worked on. And we all know this even from school, right? The term paper you're writing uh, will be vastly better if you spend two weeks working on it, researching it in a measured and paced way. Uh, it'll be vastly better than the term paper you write, uh, burning the midnight oil in a six-hour crunch the night before it's due, right? And so it is with the uh, with the work world, right? So I, I think it's great to celebrate heroes, is my point. That's good. Celebrate heroes in the corporate world, but look for and watch for the folks that get the results done, but through non-heroic, well-planned, paced and measured, thoughtful uh, work, right? So I was always on the lookout for the kind of people that, you know, got the stuff done, got the great big sales deal in, and got it in way before end of quarter, right. way before deadline. Yeah. Celebrate those people. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements. And you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code Brad20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Hey, I want to tell you about Schwank Grills. This is a revolutionary portable gas infrared grill that uses the exact same heating technology as the world's best steakhouses. You heat up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit to grill the juiciest steak you've ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Can you believe it? That's right. You do not have to go to those crowded, noisy, super overpriced steakhouses anymore when you have the same technology in your backyard. And the Schwank portable infrared grill is not just for steak. You can make chicken wings, hamburgers, seafood, lobster, vegetables. 
I make salmon in three minutes. They even have a pizza stone accessory. I want you to visit their very informative and mouth-watering website at schwankgrills.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. Everything you cook, faster, juicier. The speed is so important, so convenient. Uh, There's a drip tray on the bottom, so you let the juices drip down. I love the bison burger, the venison burgers. That's my game. And then you can add a mixture of butter, spices, whatever you want, into the tray. Pour it back onto your meat or your salmon for a huge improvement in flavor. Are you getting hungry? I am. (laughs) Let's go to schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com, and up your home cooking game. This is a -a one-of-a-kind grill. I have a great discount code for you, of course. It's BRAD150 to save $150 off your purchase of a Schwank grill. Love it. All right. Another thing that I wanted to... Uh, mention about the the culture because you had so many of these great tidbits that you you know implemented into to everyone's uh, behavior patterns. The one of them was the communication thing that stayed with me since, oh, God, since the day you still put so up relevant, that PowerPoint slide. Yeah. But yeah. also the way you delivered it is to say you, you use that leadership card once in a while, where mo- mostly you're the engaging guy who who knows if he's the receptionist or the CEO wandering around the halls and going for a run and just being being part of the team and. Uh, uh, stressing that egalitarian uh, workplace environment where everyone's doors open and it goes both ways. Um, And then, you know, the other thing you, you, you put up there was like, this is how we're going to operate at this company. No exceptions. And it was um, email was for exchange of of facts only. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Uh, yeah. Telephone uh, was for exchange of opinions or something that required, you know, some, some nuance. And then in person was anything that was potentially contentious or uh, needed to be needed to be hashed out. Yeah, well, thanks yeah. for remembering. I think you've got, yeah. I think you've got it roughly right. What, what is forgotten and, and it's, it's almost hilarious uh, when you see all oh, these massive email volleys that people write, you know, with, in personal what? life and in, in professional oh, life. In and every it just, aspect, it bleeds right? out. How about slamming people on Twitter and all that stuff? That's, exactly, yeah. 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 And, 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 um, and I would see it in the corporate world. I would see these massive email volleys with 20 people copied, and then the copying escalates. Now vice presidents are copied, you know, and that sort of thing. And these people are working, you know, feet or or uh, cubicles from one another and could very easily just call a quick meeting, call a quick huddle and, and, and deal with the issue. So, yeah, we were good at um, being crisp about what is the appropriate communications medium. And there is no substitute, no substitute for an in-person direct chat or maybe a meeting. And we had our, if you recall, our rules about how meetings have agendas and how well they should be managed. But there's nothing better than a personal meeting. If you can't do that, pick up the phone, right? And have a, have a, you know, even if it's just the phone, it's a richer interchange. You can hear the tonal inflection. You can hear the small chuckle. You can um, get a lot more nuance across on the phone, you know, if you can't get together person to person. And email is really a last resort item. And, uh, and fraud, we've all experienced it. Everybody on, uh, on your broadcast knows this. We've all done it. No matter how many little smiley face emoticons you might put in or whatnot, people construe an email or the written word in the wrong way. 
take it the wrong way, misinterpret, then they volley back and then it escalates and just, just nip that stuff in the bud, nip it in the bud and get out of your chair or pick up the phone and interact with that person or call a meeting if it's more complicated and multiple. So yeah, that we were big on that. Uh, and the companies I'm involved uh, with these days, uh, I try to instill that as well. And, and, uh, I think it's uh, it's the way to go. Avoid, uh, especially as you said, especially on contentious items. Do not use email. Do not. So that insight about the communication tiers was from this thing called interwoven core values. That was part of your right. uh, presentation that came up, and there was some fun stuff in there too in the little graphics. And one of them was about stabbing in the back or getting punched in the face. What was that? <laughs> uh, it's funny that you remember that, Brad. Um, we did have, it was kind of a provocative slide, I recall it now. Um, and it was something to do with why getting punched in the face is preferable, <laughs> right? And it, it, that was sort of a deliberate kind of uh, provocative thing to say. And, and so why is getting punched in the face better? Uh, or why is it good? It's better to get punched in the face than it is to get stabbed in the back, and the, the reason I talked about that or, or talked about it in that provocative way is I wanted to make clear that at our company, Interwoven in this case, that our company valued open, honest, and direct communications, right? So at the company, you might get some feedback that felt like, you know, it was never actually physical, but it might feel like a punch in the face or a sock in the gut. It might really hurt to get some direct, critical, hopefully respectful, but unvarnished and maybe biting kind of criticism about something that was late or not done correctly or had some shortcomings. Direct feedback that may actually feel painful. Mm. That's vastly preferred to getting stabbed in the back Um, and, and hearing secondhand from somebody's somebody's friend that, oh, uh, Fred was unhappy with Brad's work on such and such project, and you hear it around the water cooler, secondhand, thirdhand, that I call backstabbing. And that's, that's not allowed. That's not permitted. That is a serious no-no in our corporate culture. What is uh, allowed and encouraged, in fact, is direct, open, honest, respectful feedback. So be prepared for that. You know, and, you know, that's, that's sort of, that was sort of the, the point of that whole slide was be prepared for and, you know, to the extent you can welcome and embrace this direct feedback because it's vastly preferable to a stab in the back or a surprise termination or whatever right. else it might be. Right. So that is why a punch in the face or a sock in the gut uh, may in fact be is in fact preferable to a stab in the back. Wow, it seems like the other choice is is more frequent. Still, there's more stabbing in the back going on in life and in right. And we all have to yeah. work together, and we have to work with our colleagues to to rub that out and to be direct, be respectful. You know, if you have to give somebody some hard feedback, you do it in private. You probably do mm. it behind closed doors. You do it in a measurable, respectful way. And it's about the business. It's about the, mm. the business performance metric that we're worried about or the customer that we're worried about. It ought to be about the business and about making the business better. It should never be personal. You know, it's not about you, Brad, you screwed up this 
this particular aspect. But here's what we could have done, might have done, should have done better for the customer and make it about the business. Make it direct, make it respectful and delivered frontally. Mm-hmm. Delivered frontally mm-hmm. rather than via backstabbing or gossip or rumor uh, or secondhand. So I imagine you're, you're working with people that have come from all over the place in different workplace environments. And if you engage in that manner four times in a row, I imagine they're going to start to get into that groove and be, be comfortable with this new uh, approach away from backstabbing and into this, uh, into this world of open, honest, direct communication. Yeah. And, and gosh, I mean, not to veer into politics, but in today's day and age, this sort of Sort of leads us also into civility, maybe, right? So I I, I do think it, it can and should be open, honest, and direct, but it absolutely has to be civil, and it has to be respectful, and it ought to be rooted in making the business better. So that ought to be you know the jumping off point for any sort of constructive direct feedback. You know, here's what we're trying to do for the business. We all agreed we were going to take care of this customer. This didn't go particularly well. I think, you know, these are the three things we could have tightened up here. Be direct and respectful and civil, right? And, and you know, again, never backstabbing. If you want Martin Bronze to come lecture at your company, I'm sorry, he's not available, but you can play this podcast for your boss and send it anonymously through our special app. Uh, so we're getting now toward uh, your retirement. You've been working oh hard on this podcast too. I know we've been, uh, we've been uh, taking up your valuable time. But um, So when that day came and it was sort of a nice story of you, you, you rose up your journey, you, you brought this company to public offering, and then you were literally sailing off into the sunset, but then the story we took a few twists and turns, but tell us about that first. Uh, you got into sailing right after you right after you left, right? No, um, oh, it was before. Yeah, no, I've been a lifelong sailor. But I mean, you got life. into the the big. I remember you were obsessed with this boat and this big race, yeah, and you were yeah, you were launching yeah. into another peak performance ambition right <laughs> away from from. Uh, and I think I'm asking the question because I feel like we dream of the life of leisure, right? And right. then a lot of the people who are exposed to it realize that they're irrelevant, missing that uh, sense of community that they got in their career or whatever they were doing. The athletes that I've been around, we had a difficult time transitioning into real life because what we were doing was so compelling and intense. And all of a sudden, like, I'm going to go sit in a cube and, and type addresses to send a, a newsletter to. It was a, it was a, it was a big transition. Um, so I'm wondering how that transition went for you. Uh, but, in you know, all ways. You know, Brett, the, the sailing thing may actually be, in, in hindsight, may actually be something I didn't get quite right. Uh, and, and, and here's what I mean by that. You know, we talked earlier about climbing the ladder and always striving for the next position, the next assignment. And that was so much of my makeup, probably still is so much of my makeup. Um, I've, I've learned now, though, to exercise that impulse more Thoughtfully and more judiciously. Because what ended up happening with sailing for me is I actually ruined my hobby. So I, 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 had, been a, I had been a, a lifelong sailor. I, you know, when I was in college, I don't know if this is still the case or not, but when I went to college, you, you actually still had to take PE classes. I don't know if that's done anymore, but you had to do some number of credits, I think 10 credits in physical education. And, you know, I'd been a semi-decent athlete and was bored with the conventional stuff. And I, I was 
figuring out how to fulfill my PE requirement in, in college. And I noticed they offered a sailing course. And I thought, oh, that's something I haven't done. I'll try that. So very, very early, I mean, I was 18 or 19 years old in college, I uh, learned how to sail in college. And it was a requirement to, to, you know, to take the PE class. And I'm so glad I did because I got hooked on sailing. And in fact, as a young man, the first home I owned was a sailboat. I lived... Uh, now that's frowned upon. There, you know, harbors uh, around the country are sort of cracking down on what's called liveaboards. But as a young man, when I worked in San Francisco, I lived on my sailboat in San Francisco, and uh, it was a great, great lifestyle. So I had a, you know, from a sort of early adulthood on, I had a passion for sailing. But I think um, I kept escalating. I kept escalating. Imagine that. The guy who's <laughs> rising up the corporate ladder kept up in the ante, man. So I kept buying larger and faster boats, larger and faster boats. This is during boats. your career. During so my you're, career. You're, you're during a weekend enthusiast all, uh, oh, all yeah. along. Oh, you know, no, yeah. I, was, I was very committed, as we discussed, very committed to my career and working hard. But I did have this hobby that was um, first just sailing, you know, sailing with friends, sailing with my girlfriend, later wife, um, and that led, though, to yacht racing, which is a whole different thing and a, and a, a, a perfect way to ruin a nice hobby. So I, I, I did start racing competitively and bought bigger and faster boats, bigger and faster boats, bigger and faster boats. And, and in the end, one day, there I was on my 53-foot uh, ocean racing sloop looking around the deck, <clears throat> realizing that half the guys on my boat were professionals that I had hired. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... My wife was nowhere to be seen. She hadn't gone sailing with me in over a year because the boat was too high strung. There was too much shouting and yelling and action and drama and injuries. And, you know, we were, we were, we were competing at the highest amateur level. We won the St. Francis Yacht Club Big Boat Series multiple years in a row. In 2004, I raced in the Pacific Cup from San Francisco to Hawaii, and we won not only our class, but we won the race overall. <laughs> so How many days that take? That was, if I recall, I could look it up for you, but I think that was an eight-day transit from San Francisco to Hawaii, if I remember right. Eight days, some hours, and some minutes. But we won that race, and we, we beat the second-place boat by eight hours, which is a massive margin of victory in long-distance yacht racing. Um, right? So, you know, we did well. But finally, I paused, and I looked up, and I thought, you know, I have ruined my hobby. This is now a corporation, you know, with, with a big expense and a professional boat manager and professional crew. And, um, and I realized I wasn't having fun anymore. Just the pure, simple joy what of What was sailing. the boat you had at, uh, at San Jose State PE class? That going oh, it was out a small the... dinghy. Yeah. I, I, wanna th <laughs> I think it was a boat called an FJ, Flying Junior, if I remember. Just a small one-person Well, that dinghy. was the name of your championship yacht, wasn't it? The Flying Junior? Oh, no, no sorry. No, 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 no. But anyway, so uh, it, I guess my point to your listeners might be striving is good, climbing the ladder is good, just be really thoughtful about how you're escalating. Are you escalating up the right ladders and in the right ways? And is it really fulfilling? And it's not going to be fulfilling all the time at every uh, moment. There will be frustrations. There will be setbacks. But are you really, you know, are you, are you really getting over yourself? Are you getting over yourself? Yeah. Are you doing it with intent? Mm -hmm. Are you being thoughtful about uh, all these ladders that you're climbing? 
And because um, we have these impure influences around, like I mean, if you're going to go win the, uh, the 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 lower level race over and over, someone's going to say, "Hey, Martin, aren't you going to go into the the, the class A uh, boating? You, you should you exactly. should get a big old exactly. boat." And, and is it someone else's idea? Right? Is it right. someone else? Is it some cultural pressure or societal pressure or or just uh, you know the guys at the yacht club that that. Uh, uh, you know, frankly, may have a selfish agenda. They, ma- they, may want, they may want to sail on a boat like that, so they're encouraging you to get one, right? Or whatever it may be. Make sure, uh, make sure you check your own intentions on whatever, whatever uh, goals you set for yourself and whatever ladders you're going to be busily climbing. Be thoughtful about it. And so for me, sailing was a pretty good uh, character development lesson uh, when I uh, looked around one day and realized I had ruined a perfectly good hobby. Did you really have an epiphany one day? I did, and I sold, the boat. The... I sold the boat. Uh, <laughs> I sold the boat the next week. I sold the boat the next week. Was it during the race to Hawaii, or was it just a, a no, routine? No, it was one of, the, one of the smaller regattas yeah. in San Francisco Bay. And um, Did you win the thing? When you- of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming into Harper with a forced sale. He, he wrote an, uh, on ink on oh, his mask. Oh, I just, I just, you know, I, I, I remembered why I had started in the hobby and just the pure, simple joy of moving a boat through the water mm-hmm. on, on, uh, uh, on, on wind energy alone and spending time with friends. Those were the things I enjoyed about it. And I had, you know, corrupted it slowly over, a bit like boiling a frog, right? But one day I did take notice of where I had arrived and I thought, you know, is this, is this really what I want to do anymore? And I, I gave it up immediately and, and uh, took up some other hobbies after it. Oh, so the next you got into auto racing. I did. I, I and took did up, that look uh, differently because of your sailing experience? Were you coming in with a little more um, casual, fun-loving approach, or how did that go? Well, <laughs> I, actually, I shouldn't word it that way because you're behind a wheel of a powerful machine, and um, I, I'm the first one to say that having these intense competitive goals and this amazing passion to do something and do it better is a really important part of life. But you have to balance that with that, that, uh, that admonition to get over yourself so you can still compete really hard and try to get better and do your video training and all that stuff. But we don't want to go into that sailboat story again. So that's, I think, the challenge, right. the, the right. balance point to navigate. That's right. That's right. And, and, and I've been not perfect about it, but I've been perhaps more thoughtful in pursuing the, uh, uh, the sports car racing um, as opposed to my all in experience with the yacht racing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm racing uh, Porsches, two different types. I'm still feeling out sort of whether I'm more a vintage racing guy, the more classic uh, early air cooled Porsches, or I also have one of the more modern cars. And I'm, I'm thinking that through. This year, and I'm going to be more thoughtful about uh, how and, and and sort of which series I pursue in the future. But I am enjoying the motorsports, and it is it's interesting in contrast to yacht racing. Uh, though I have a team, you know, I have a great team of mechanics, and my air cooled car was built by a very great team. Um, uh, so you have great support in these in these races. But when you're out on track, it really is very pugilistic, if that's the right word. It's very one-on-one. It, when you're on the track, it's just you and the other guy next to you in the corner, right? Very different from yacht racing, where it is very much a team sport. Um, my big sailboat was raced with 16 men 
on the on deck, right? So it's very much a team and sport. And one woman at home. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and in motorsports, it is very much more like boxing, pugilistic, one-on-one. And uh, I think I prefer that. Mm-hmm. I think I prefer sure. that. Because I spent a lot of time in team sports. Right. I was just going to say, uh, a lot of time in the team work. The corporate world is right. all team, right? right. And so I, I quite like the, the um, one-on-one aspect of the motorsports. And I think I'll stay with it. Figuring out right now what what exact sort of series I want to run next year. And uh, that's to be determined. Uh, but when you, when you go away from the track, do you have that... Um that mindset developed where you're able to let go and not let that competitive intensity take over and spoil your enjoyment of the experience. No, Brad. It's, are, are, you, are you stewing <laughs> when you're driving home? I'm still competitive. No, I mean, no, no, no. When, uh, the nice thing is in motorsports, it's exhausting. When you're driving home, you're exhausted. So you're, you're, yeah, you you're spent. That, um, th- th- there's a tremendous sense of satisfaction in itself that you are a participant and you, you get yeah, it all out there on it's, the track. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a maximal effort. Uh, well, mentally. People don't realize that about driving a car. They're no, it's, thinking, it's, you know, uh, it's probably, you know, and I've, I've done triathlons and mm, all sorts of... You've done of, the Ultraman, uh, the, the hardest triathlon on the planet. Yeah, I've done yeah. some grueling things. But um, Porsche racing or car racing is intensely demanding, psychically, physically, emotionally, in every way, and um, cathartic too. Um, so, yeah, when, when you're driving home, you're, you're spent, you are spent, and and I, I like that about it. It's uh, and you certainly can't be distracted behind the wheel. You are focused. You are very very focused, and uh, so I find it rewarding. It's bittersweet. There are bad days. Days you crash the car. Mm. Days you don't do well. Days the car breaks down. Uh, you know, so there is that. Um, but it makes the the victories and the the good duels on track that much more rewarding when they happen. So I'm going to stick with it. I'm finding it pretty satisfying. And I'm just trying to figure out now sort of which of the many different cars you can run and race in. Uh, where is my niche? Um, you have to weigh a little bit to the social aspect, which mm-hmm. I'm starting to put more and more weight on. Mm-hmm. You know, which group of co-drivers mm-hmm. do you most enjoy spending time with? Because it's not just the racing. There's a lot of time in what's called the paddock, right? In sitting around the paddock or having a barbecue after the event. And so which group of um, peer drivers do I um, have the most affinity with? So there's a lot to weigh, and and I, I hope I'm being thoughtful about it. It's something I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of this season and, and then have a new plan for next season. Martin Bronze, always with a new plan. Thank you so much for catching up. Fascinating story, and... Uh, good luck out there. Drive drive safely, right, on behalf of everyone listening. Get Take out your aggressions on the track, not on the road. Right, indeed, indeed. Will do, Brad, will do. Thanks for coming over. Thanks, listeners. Oh, my, I get to talk about my almost heaven sauna. This has been a life-changing acquisition that gives me easy and constant access to one of the most health-boosting therapeutic treatments imaginable, the sauna. Yes, of course, it's been a cultural tradition in Scandinavia and other cold-weather countries for hundreds of years. Maybe it's your favorite part of your health club visit or your ski trip vacation resort. But what about if you had a personal sauna in your 
own home, in your garage, or your backyard, check out almostheaven.com. They make these super attractive barrel-shaped saunas made of thick, solid wood. None of this fake stuff. It's super easy to assemble. They ship it in a kit to your door. You watch the video. You put it together. Get an electrician to wire it, and you're good to go. Turn the timer on, and 30 minutes later, you are in the hot, hot, dry, up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, and that is the magic zone to get the vaunted health benefits of sauna exposure. You may have heard of these highly lauded heat shock proteins. They deliver profound benefits at the cellular level to boost immune function, cognitive function, cardiovascular function, improve muscular response to exercise and recovery from intense exercise, and of course, longevity. Go to foundmyfitness.com, Rhonda Patrick, and download her report for the extreme scientific details of how beneficial sauna is. I have this classic outdoor pinnacle model. It's six foot by six foot, fits four adults sitting comfortably or two adults reclining and instantly going into napping mode. I know, man, when you get in there, no matter what kind of day you had or what mood you're in, you will instantly feel chill. And this is called a hormetic stressor, a positive natural stressor that creates an adaptive response. So with regular sauna use, you become more resilient to all forms of stress that you experience in daily life. Same with my cold plunge into the cold freezer. It delivers these similar health and hormonal benefits that will make it an absolutely essential part of a relaxing, stress-balanced day. Please go check them out. It will change your life. And you can get these beautiful six by six or a larger model or even smaller for a surprisingly affordable price due to the direct relationship. You order it on almostheaven.com. They ship it to your door. I can't say enough about it. I'm so excited. This sounds like a commercial. Okay, it is a commercial. But let me tell you, beyond the health benefits, this is a social centerpiece. It's a place to relax and chill and splash the water on the rocks and get a burst of steam. So go pay a quick visit to almostheaven.com. Warning, you're going to be tempted. Hi, it's Brad to talk about ancestral supplements. Question for you, how's it going with the critically important health objective of consuming some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, namely bone marrow, collagen, and nose-to-tail organ meats like liver, heart, kidney, and more? Yeah, how's it going? Pretty poorly? How did I guess? I have to admit the same. I'm sorry, folks. I've known for a long time since Dr. Kate Shanahan and her wonderful book, Deep Nutrition, emphasized that this is a sorely missing element of the modern diet, but a huge part of the ancestral diet that made humans the healthy creatures that they are today. And now we have a fantastic and convenient solution from Ancestral Supplements because they make New Zealand-sourced bone, marrow, and nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, spleen, and more, delivered in simple, convenient gelatin capsules. Oh my gosh, I love this product, and I love what this company's all about. Go on their website, ancestralsupplements.com, read one of the most impactful and inspiring mission statements you'll ever see from a company. Listen to how they describe their product. Traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believe that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ in the individual. The traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart 
was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal. Sound hokey to you? I'm sorry, but this is extremely well supported with scientific evidence confirming that these are the foods that our DNA evolved with and are sorely missing from the modern food supply. That's why Ancestral Supplement says that they're putting back in what the modern world has left out to return people back to strength, health, and happiness. And hey, if you're a clean living person that kind of doesn't like the idea of popping a bunch of synthetic vitamins in the name of health, going over to GNC and buying 12 bottles, this is an entirely different story. This is real food packaged conveniently so that you don't have to worry about your liver making skills or how to best cook a kidney. <laughs> Just swallow the pills, man. I throw them in my smoothie every morning. So I'm taking about four or five capsules of the various ancestral supplement products. I'm throwing down the beef organs, the beef liver, the bone marrow. There's so many other ones on their absolutely fabulous and educational website. Thanks for trying it. Ancestralsupplements.com. You will love it. 